The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Support for Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast comes from Remax Commercial. The Remax Commercial Global Network can help you adapt to changing markets, evolve with new technology, and maximize your investments across all property types. Go commercial with confidence. For more information, visit www.remaxcommercial.com. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. This month, I speak with Josh Patinkin, Managing Director of Real Estate for Leste Group, a leading global alternative investments platform. He discusses an approach to investment in affordable housing that focuses on a fundamental imbalance in supply and demand that can produce opportunities in various markets, especially those in the Southeast US and Texas. Patinkin also eyes healthcare and cold storage as CRE markets that pack plenty of potential heading into 2022. All right, and today I'm joined by Josh Patinkin, Managing Director of Real Estate with the Lesty Group. Josh, thank you much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And now looking at your professional history, um, you've got quite a track record in the multifamily sector and with recently focusing a bit on the workforce affordable housing uh, niche. You know, what have you learned about the sector and what's key to kind of making the numbers make sense in what can be a traditionally uh, tricky sector? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have been active in acquiring workforce housing or what we think of as the B apartment asset class. And what the, the fundamental that we see as most attractive uh, and providing the most secular tailwind is supply. It's from a supply demand perspective. We just feel um, there's going to be demand. People need a home to live in. Uh, lots of people are moving to some of the markets we all talk about in the Southeast, in Texas, Florida. That's where we're acquiring. So demand is strong and growing. And the supply that comes in is really going to focus more on A-class apartments. The construction costs, mainly driven by wages in the construction industry, has gotten to the point where you really need to have $2,500, $3,000 rents in order to make sense of of development. So any new supply, any new development that's coming in is really going to focus on A-class apartments. The $1,500 rents that we've been focused on, there's going to be very little new supply. And any new supply that comes in might be in an undesirable location way out on the fringe of urban sprawl, or it might you know, be a, an affordable home within an A-class apartment, of which, which is limited. So we, we see the supply-demand dynamic in workforce housing is very favorable to the landlord. And with the national housing shortage of, say, three, four million homes in 150 million home uh, country, we're already starting off undersupplied and it's just going to continue to worsen. So we're, we're acquiring multifamily in class B and we, we see that as um, a, a good dynamic for the landlord. And Rents will continue to rise, especially within an inflationary environment like we're in right now. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of the uh, the migration patterns to the southeast to Texas and the west. Um, 
you know, there's been some talk of that being exacerbated by the pandemic, but those were those were kind of in place before COVID. Um, is that the kind of long range trend that you see is that these are the markets where um, where interest is growing and, and where, you know, where demand is growing? I do. And, and what I would say is many of the trends that we had existing before COVID were really accelerated by COVID. So you've already seen lots of households and people move to places like Nashville and Austin, to Florida, um, a little bit across the rest of Texas, not a little bit, but places like Dallas, Houston, Atlanta have been huge um, positive migration cities. And that those trends were really accelerated through COVID. A lot of people, we all really had the opportunity to reevaluate our lives, think through our livelihoods, what's best for our families, what's our best earning potential. And people who were considering making a move for better weather, for a better job, well, they they made the decision, right? They had they had the time to to reevaluate. And if you were on the fence, you probably jumped off the fence onto the into the new market, into the new home, into the new job that you were considering before COVID. So we see that only continuing, probably not quite at the same pace as you've seen in 2021. Um, you had a standstill in 2020, nobody moved, right? You just, you couldn't or you didn't want to. And now in 2021, that hangover has really not dissipated, but you've gotten through some of the hangover that was left from 2020. In 2022, we see it moderating, um, but continuing the same trends. Yeah. And you mentioned just kind of the the basic uh, factors of supply and demand in affordable housing. Um, do you see any of the roadblocks to providing that $1,500 rent apartment? Are, are any of those roadblocks um, getting smaller or, or are people finding solutions to them? Or is this kind of a problem that's going to that's going to continue to be a, a thorn in the side of, of the sector? I think that the south, southeastern governments, both municipal state um, are, are encouraging new supply, right? Places like South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida generally are supportive of new development. And that Texas, for sure. That isn't the case in a lot of um, cities along the coast, like California. San Francisco in particular is tough. Boston is tough. New York is really difficult with things like rent control. So it, it's, a, it's a policy discussion. That's the main challenge, I feel. In some of these other places um, where a government is supportive of new development, they want to see more jobs created. They're generally pro-business. I, I think you will see more affordable housing come in. Um, the infrastructure in these cities is also on its way. And there's there's strong balance sheets, strong incomes in, in many of these um, municipalities. So I, they're supportive of it. And place like Tampa Bay, as an example, lots of new development happening on on the fringes of the suburban sprawl. And you look at these communities and it's like, wow, who would want to live there? But Tampa Bay is just attracting so many jobs and so much in migration right now that everything that gets built leases up almost right away. It's an extremely tight market. And because they're building on the suburban sprawl, they can afford to charge less rent. You know, maybe these are um, surface park, three-story walk-ups in some cases. Oftentimes they're elevated building, which provides a little bit more cost. And so you have to charge a little bit more in rent. But the land is cheap or has been, and the governments are friendly and supportive. Uh, and you don't have to build 
structured parking because you're building on the fringe of a relatively young new city that hasn't grown up quite as much. And you've got um, a lot of favorable dynamics there to provide cheaper rents for people as they move into the Southeast and to Texas. Gotcha. And in those more mature markets, whether it's the Midwest, California, or the Northeast, is it a matter of moving from the city center out to suburban locations, or is it really a case-by-case basis? Um, It's more municipal, but it's also state. California is a good example. I mean, most governments in California, whether they're municipal or at the state level, are uh, are generally unsupportive. Now, it's hard to make blanket comments like that, right? And everything comes in shades of gray. But I, I look at a place like San Francisco in the Bay Area that doesn't allow very much new development at all. And that's a real problem, right? Because it's extremely unaffordable to live there. Lots of jobs have migrated to places like Austin and Nashville. In fact, we we just acquired a few apartment communities in, in Austin so we're very attuned to the job dynamic that's that's going on there, specifically with respect to technology. Um, you've got companies like Tesla moving their headquarters from California to Austin. I mean, that's going to bring tens of thousands of jobs. Apple's building a new campus there. Palo Alto suffering as a result of that. It's characterized as an HQ2 for Apple in Austin. And we saw an article and lots of articles come out that Austin is supplanting uh, the Bay Area as the new tech hub of the United States. And that's some, it's a trend, again, that we've seen happening. But it's really accelerated now. Employment levels in Austin are f- much further along and back to where they were pre-COVID. Um, Bay Area is really struggling. It's not just um, big software tech. It's companies like Palantir, a big data firm that provides analytics to a lot of defense departments around the world. They've they've moved their headquarters from Palo Alto to Denver, another you know positive migration city that's generally friendly. Though that's from a government standpoint, but that's changing a little bit with some of the new council in Denver. So again, it, it gets it's very idiosyncratic. It gets into not just municipal um, action and policy, but specific councilmen that might have prerogative over whether they're going to approve a project in their little submarket of Denver or Austin, et cetera. So it's, it's really hard to, to paint a broad brushstroke, but we're, we're seeing um, really favorable steps being made generally in Texas, generally in the Southeast and places like this, the peninsula of San Francisco specifically, very unfriendly, difficult to develop in. And that continues uh, to Berkeley for sure. I would say um, that Oakland is, is much better, but it's still difficult. And the only reason you're seeing new supply come in is because the rents are just so high in the Bay Area that you can afford things like 20, 25% affordable housing in a project. So um, I think that the trend of moving away from California or San Francisco specifically to Texas and Denver it's, is gonna is just gonna accelerate and continue. I, I don't know that um, I, I know Oakland is a beneficiary of some of of that too, but not quite to the same level, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, there are you know there's it's not always black and white, and and there are kind of especially when you're speaking with. Uh, about governments, there's layers upon layers. And, and even if, um, like you said, there's one councilman or uh, one representative can, can be problematic or or very beneficial. Um, 
if as kind of once we're uh, well, now that we're almost two years out from the the onset of COVID, is the uh, the spread of remote work and kind of um, the growing ability to work 100% remotely is that factoring into any of these trends that you're examining, or is it is it too soon to kind of understand the impact of of a of a, of a move towards more remote work? You know, it's too soon really to know. We we've steered away um, from investing in the office sector. And for that reason, we just, we can't predict the future. Our crystal ball isn't quite clear enough. If you, if you've got any input or advice for us, we'll take it because we don't know the answer. Um, I, I, I think that one of the trends you saw before COVID really took shape was uh, a lot of co-working space in new apartment buildings, especially high rise, right? Where you've got lots of units and it's easy to defray the cost of nice amenities like co-working and office space across four or 500 units. So every project that we're designing right now, we're building in, you know, bigger offices, more office space so that people can choose to not just work from their apartment, which, you know, are going to need to continue to be 750, 800 feet on average. Uh, but they can also go down to the 12th story amenity deck and get a, a uh, an espresso while they do their work from a co-working space. So that that's something we're we're mindful of and designing into our apartment communities moving forward. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, I, I reading a little bit about Lusty group. Uh, there's an emphasis on ESG within the multifamily sector, which is, um, just something I didn't really kind of pop to the front of my mind. It's, it's I always associated with office and industrial developments. Um, but kind of how do, how do you see ESG fitting into multifamily? It's a good question. Um, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity for ESG and multifamily. And just getting back to one of the discussion points from earlier and how governments can support or not support new development. I mean, we have a we have a housing crisis in the country, right? We're 4 million homes short on 150 million households. That's, we're starting off 2.5% in the hole, and there's no way we can keep up with um, the amount of households being formed by the millennial generation right now with the, with the new supply that we've got planned. So we've got to build more homes. And there's a lot of municipalities that are just anti-development. Um, there are ways to control rents other than just slapping regulation on the industry. And we're seeing, we're seeing municipalities. I'll just keep beating up on San Francisco, if that's all right with you. We're seeing uh, municipalities like San Francisco and New York really bringing back rent control and other concepts like that. My my view is affordable. Require developers to build affordable housing in some of these markets because they can afford to do it. Um, the rents are really high, and people are are paying those rents. And financing for affordable is cheap. Supplied it will supported in large part by the federal government. And so, if you require developers to build affordable homes, 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever the market will support in a new project where rents are really high and the market rate apartments can, can bring the average rent up enough to justify the cost of construction, do it, right? That's the way to not just um, create more construction activity in some of these under-housed cities, 
but it's also a way to control rent, right? Because you're just delivering more supply into an undersupplied market. Is there community backlash to that? Is it is it a local thing where kind of the NIMBY situation where you know affordable housing is great for the community next to mine, but but I don't want it in my backyard? There's some of that, yeah, neighborhood groups who just you know are anti anti change. Um, I, my my grandfather, who lived to be 91, said that he had seen a lot of change in his life, and he was opposed to every single one of them. So I think there's a lot of that 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 takes shape with neighborhood communities. So what I would what I would characterize as a um, a force against against new development is um, just a misunderstanding of gentrification, right? When you have a new high rise come into a place like East Washington D.C., right? around the Capitol building, it's been a tough neighborhood for many, many years. And that's completely changed in the last 10, I would say. And even towards Anacostia, which is now being developed, none of us would have predicted that 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And now there's, you know, class A apartments that cost $3,500 a month coming in every day. And people see that as displacing um, the locals, displacing the community because you've got working professionals coming in who make $100,000 a year and can afford the $3,500 rent. And that's, that's really impacting the community in a negative way. And again, it just gets back to policy. If, if you're able to create a dynamic where you can require developers to provide affordable housing in a way that's economic for them, where they can still make money and seek financing from the investment community, then that's a win-win. And a lot of the local people are able to stay in the neighborhood and, and live in affordable homes. And you're also providing more supply, more homes. Again, this is just pure economics 101, supply demand. The more homes we have, the cheaper the rents will be. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, um, that I think, at least I'm being in Chicago for the last 25 years, you know, I've I've seen neighborhoods change and, and they used to change um, much, I think much less intentional than they are, than they do now. And that, I think that's, that goes to your point of kind of, uh, of, of being mindful of, of how new development can change a community. And at the same time, having the community involved with, uh, with potential developments. That's right. That's right. In a constructive way where there's a clear path to getting entitlement based on a prescription that the development community, the neighborhood community, the city, all the stakeholders have had constructive input into. And that's available. You know, San Diego has done a good job recently with um, some of the zoning ordinances they've put into place, which are now providing developers, you know, as of right development. Uh, but they have to build 10 or 15 percent affordable in, in San Diego, which is, you know, San Diego, like most of California, is extremely underhomed. Kind of, you know, pulling back a minute to, to look at at CRE as a whole, um, kind of heading into 2022. Obviously, you can't predict the future. Um, we've all learned that in the recent years. Uh, but, you know, what do you see for for commercial markets heading into the new year? Well, we're all focused on inflation right now. I mean, I would not be surprised to see the fourth quarter come in with a 7% inflationary number. I think a lot of that has to do with supply chain challenges more than permanent price increases. And we might see inflation temper into the back half of 2022. Um, we're seeing more expensive debt come into place. You know, 2021 was really a year of very cheap debt. And now that's changing slightly. So everyone in the industry is, is super focused on what the Fed's going to do and 
What's the cost of borrowing going to look like? How much inflation is going to take place? And we've seen a complete price reset on almost everything, right? Whether it's milk from the grocery store or the cost of your apartment or the cost of a penthouse in Miami Beach, right? Everything's gone up. So whether when that stops, which asset classes, which goods and services um, increase more and where they increase more, that's the real question today. And how you can play those relative values from an investment standpoint is on the top of everybody's mind. I wish I knew the answer. Um, we are we're really focused more on fundamentals and long term long term capital flows long term real estate fundamentals i always say that good things happen to good assets and good locations and that's that's kind of real estate 101 from our perspective and what we got to got to stay focused on rather than trying to predict you know what might happen it's inflationary pressure and federal reserve yeah, it's, uh, you know, just in the most basic way, it's if you're looking instead of at one quarter, you're looking at one decade, it's it's um, it kind of relieves some stress knowing that you have a long enough timeline where if the fundamentals are there, uh, you know, things things will work out no matter the hiccups here and there. And, you know, I think I think the supply chain challenges that we've we've seen in the last few quarters will will relieve themselves a little bit. There's been a lot of investment in industrial over the last few quarters and in several years, really. Uh, that's going to continue to take shape. I think you'll you'll see new lines of investment in industrial take shape. You know, we're focused right now on what we call the industrial service facilities. So it's mainly truck terminals, and whether it's a retailer who's you know maybe say food and beverage, and they're they're taking water off of, off of one truck and uh, one big trailer and putting it into a bunch of vans for local delivery and last mile logistics. Um, or it could be something m- more focused on, on, uh, on you know, last mile in, in general. Um, but it's, it's not warehouses, right? It's not, it's not new development of warehouses to to satiate e-commerce demand. That, that's definitely going to continue to happen. Um, we, we like the, the new infrastructure that's taking shape in the country as we, we shift some of our consumerism to be more uh, e-commerce in general. And, and industrial real estate has, has been a major beneficiary of of. The trend that we had, again, before COVID, accelerated by COVID, which was people going away from Walmart and away from the shopping mall and toward Amazon and toward Target.com. You know, take those last two retailers in specific, right? Amazon, in my opinion, is not even halfway through its e-commerce uh, infrastructure rollout. They have so much more investment capacity in order to satisfy their supply chains. Target recently announced that they're just getting started, that they found the prototype and the solution that works for them in terms of satisfying Target.com and the sales growth they're seeing there. I mean, they're not a small online retailer by any stretch of the imagination, but they they publicly said, hey, we're, we're just getting started on this business. It's going to take a decade to fully build out. So I think there's can, will continue to be a lot of infrastructure development in industrial um, and not just warehouses, but are up and down the supply chain. 
Yeah, it's been interesting to kind of see how how commercial real estate has responded to um, just kind of the increase or the I should say the shortened timeline that came along with COVID that, you know, things that were expected to be take five years is now a matter of, you know, eight months with everybody locked inside ordering everything from online. And one other sector that that's really been kind of newsworthy is is healthcare. Um, you know, do do you have any insights as far as investment and development um, with kind of healthcare, you know, medical, commercial real estate? So we've been active in the healthcare acquisition space, mainly acquiring lesser known asset types. Again, we we really like the idea of acquiring bespoke or, or um, less paid attention to asset classes. That maybe are mispriced or just underserved by the institu- institutional capital market. So we've been acquiring a lot of um, doctors' offices, small medical office buildings, essentially, and then rolling them up and, and exiting them as a portfolio or listing them on a stock exchange as a as a as a listed company. So that's that's a strategy that's worked well for us, and we um we we think healthcare look it enjoys some of the same secular tailwinds that both industrial and multifamily housing uh, enjoy. That is, the country's growing. The millennial generation is growing or is coming of age for multifamily. The baby boomer generation is retiring and getting older from a healthcare standpoint. Those are, those are strong you know, underlying fundamentals um, that will support those, those asset classes into the future here. So it's a good place to be positioning capital from our perspective. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and maybe uh, one one final note um, going into the new year. Is there is there one area or one sector or one niche uh, within commercial real estate that you kind of that, that you might think is overlooked as far as, uh, as as something with with a lot of potential? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think one area that I would like to be more involved in than we are is the cold storage industry. You know, I, I think that COVID really emphasized how weak our cold storage logistics are in this country. There aren't large cold storage warehouses. There, there's not enough of them. There's a few big players, but there's not enough kind of real estate shops providing capital to the cold storage industry. And what I mean, as I look around and see how food or especially cold food dry dry goods is a little different but cold food is is distributed it's generally ending up especially at the last mile but really in the last say 10 or 15 miles with a um a local distributor who's maybe pieced together a 15 or 20,000 foot storage facility that they figure out how to keep cold uh, i think there's a great opportunity for large real estate investors landlords to pool capital together to build mega facilities that are 250,000, 500,000 feet and are much more three-dimensional in their storage, kind of like how Amazon revolutionized the dry storage space. Um, the cold storage space is ripe for disruption right now, in my opinion. And the, the guys that figure out how to put those facilities together and gather the industry around just one large facility that's much more efficient and ultimately gets food, cold and frozen food in the hands of consumers faster, easier, cheaper. That's a, that's a, a great way to make money. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and that's a great, 
a great way to end is, is uh, letting our, our listeners know how they can make money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you, if you find an opportunity, please don't leave me and last day out. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Josh, thanks so much for joining commercial investment real estate podcast. Terrific. Nice to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of commercial investment real estate podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.